I'd like to issue a warning before I uh, teach. I may be wrong this morning in my interpretation of this passage. As Alexander Haig once said to the press, I want to caveat my statements. Uh, it's only fair that I say that. I, I have been wrong before. It's just that I normally don't admit it. But uh, since I'm taking a course that most commentators avoid on this passage, I feel a little bit uneasy about it. I'm about 99% sure that I'm right, but there's enough nagging doubt that I wanted to at least express my uneasiness so that you will search the scriptures for yourself. I don't think I'm wrong about the application because it, 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 the same application occurs numerous times in, in scripture, but the interpretation is in doubt. So having issued that warning, now everybody is sitting there with bated breath waiting to see whether I'm right or wrong. Let's turn to Acts 21. Acts 21.1. When it came about that we had parted from them, that is the elders at Miletus, and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. I read uh, those three verses to Carolyn the other morning, and I said, What is the spiritual significance of that uh, travelogue? And she said, Well, it's a parable. It's an allegory. That as you sail your ship through life, if you avoid uh, rocks along the way and you don't uh, crack up on the uh, rocks of life, you will get to heaven and you will unload your cargo. You will lay your burden down. And my reaction was a big guffaw. <clears throat> she was kidding, of course. That's not at all what the passage means. Unfortunately, that is the way a lot of people interpret Scripture. But uh, this is simply a description of a journey from Miletus on the coast of uh, Turkey to the Syrian coast. That's all it is. Sounds like a, the sort of postcard that you get from someone, uh, a relative or friend who's traveling overseas. You know, we set sail from uh, Miletus today and passed uh, Cyprus on the port, and uh, we arrived in, in uh, Syria having a great time. Wish you were here. It's that sort of thing. Uh, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable, but obviously some Scripture is more profitable than others. All Paul, uh, Luke is trying to do in this particular case is describe a journey. That's all. Paul left from Miletus, booked a passage on a freighter, uh, making its way to Syria, went over to Kos, which is a little island just off the coast of Turkey, and then on over to uh, Rhodes and then back to the coast again. Patera, I think the ship was a sort of a milk run. It must have stopped at a number of places. And then he took passage on a Phoenician uh, freighter, and they, made a, uh, they sailed straight across the uh, Mediterranean to the Syrian coast. If there's any significance here at all, it's simply that Luke is accurate in his facts, extremely accurate. We can trust him. And secondly, there's an indication here of the sovereignty of God and his direction even over the winds in the course of, uh, of a venture uh, like this. Paul arrived on the Syrian coast and uh, landed at Tyre, which was the capital of Phoenicia, a large commercial shipping center, had been a 
Canaanite city. That's the place uh, from which Ahab's daughter Jezebel came. But at this time, it was simply a large uh, seaport. And he looked up the church. There was a small, struggling church there. We, don't, we know nothing, whatever, about this group of Christians. We don't know how the church was founded. It, it may be the result of the dispersion that, of Christians that took place over the martyrdom of Stephen. But uh, there was a church there, and Paul looked them up. In verse 4, Luke tells us that after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days while they were unloading the ship. It must have been a grain ship of some sort, so it took about a week to unload it. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Seems pretty clear. I don't know how else Luke would, would put it. The church there, through the Spirit, said to Paul, Stop going to Jerusalem, literally. And it was through the Spirit of God. And you have to remember that Luke is saying this in retrospect. He's looking back on his life. And he's agreeing that this was a revelation that came uh, through the Spirit of God and through these uh, Christians in Tyre. And it came about that our days there were ended. That when our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey. While they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, and after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. Uh, it seems to me that Paul wanted to spend some time with these Christians because he wanted to encourage them. But as it happened, they had a word for him. And that's often the case. That's why I've, I've said over and over again, discipleship is always mutual. Uh, it's never one way. Here, this church, which Paul had, had no contact with, whatever became the agent for instructing the Apostle Paul. They, they taught him. He, uh, he looked them up when he, when he arrived at this strange city because he wanted contact with his church. One question that occurred to me as I read through the passage is, who do we look up when we come to a strange town? Is it the body of Christ or some of our old cronies or drinking buddies? Who do we look up? Where do we spend our time? In, uh, in cities where we're not known. Uh, Paul apparently thought it was extremely important to spend time with, with the Christians, not only to encourage them, but in this case, so he could receive some encouragement, though it occurs in the form of discouragement. They're telling him not to go to, to Jerusalem. It occurred to me one day that the, the, the worst thing that you can do to a Christian is to isolate him from other Christians. That's a form of discipline in the church. When a brother or sister won't uh, obey the truth, after numerous attempts to try to draw them in, Paul says that we are to put them on the outside where Satan can have his way with them. And it occurred to me, if, if that's the worst thing that we can do to a Christian, it, it is sheer folly for us to put ourselves outside of Christian fellowship, to go to a strange town and make no contact with other Christians, try to go it alone. We're too vulnerable. It, it, it's foolishness. A friend of mine was telling me this last, oh, it's been a month or so, really, that he was in a strange town. He travels a great deal and arrived in town. He was lonely and bored, and he got dressed and went out looking for trouble. He says, frankly, it was just a choice that he made. And he walked out of his hotel room to a bar across the street, a restaurant and bar, and as he was making his way to the 
front door who should come out of the restaurant but another member of this body. It just happened to be in that city at that time. And they sort of grabbed him and took him into the restaurant. They had a cup of coffee. And as he looks back on it, he said, the man saved my life. We just need each other. We're vulnerable out there without the rest of the body. Paul realized that. And yet the interesting thing is that on this particular occasion, he doesn't, he doesn't give heed to God's voice through these people. He stubbornly goes on. They say, don't go. Paul says, I'm going to go anyway. Luke describes their parting, which is uh, interesting in that they'd only known each other for seven days. They go down to the beach and... Luke says all the their wives and children, little kitties, were running around on the beach. They said goodbye to the apostle, prayed with him, sent him on his way. They journeyed on from Tyre and arrived at Ptolemaeus, which is modern Akko or Acre. And they greeted the brethren there. Must have been a church in Ptolemaeus, probably established by Philip the evangelist. And then the next day, he says, we departed and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were, who were prophetesses. Uh, Philip was one of the uh, Jerusalem seven, one of the seven men that had been chosen by the church in Jerusalem to take care of the Greek widows in the church whose needs were being overlooked. They were appointed by the apostles so the apostles could be free to do their work of teaching and evangelizing, working within the body. And Philip went on to become a, a well-known, famous uh, evangelist. He, he's the one who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ and then planted churches along the west coast of, of Palestine and now seems to be retired. He apparently was elderly, and he has four unmarried daughters living with him who were prophetesses. Uh, Luke is fond of, of just including little human interest things like this. We don't know much about these women, really nothing, other than... And one early church historian, a man by the name of Eusebius, refers to them as Luke's informants. That's how he got a lot of his information about Philip and his early ministry and the early ministry of the church. And we wouldn't know that, I suppose, if Eusebius hadn't told, told us. But he's just a little vignette, a little picture of, of, uh, of Philip in his waning years with his daughters. Paul Reese says uh, this about Philip. I would like to remember that while Philip faded from fame, he did not fade from fruitfulness. There were those four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Instead of being frustrated, peevish old maids, they were radiant and articulate spinsters. I love that. <clears throat> He's reading between the lines. I don't know how he would know that they were elderly, but perhaps they were. He describes them as a happy harvest from fine parental sowing. Then uh, Luke goes on to describe what was for him the more important event that occurred in, in uh, Caesarea. Verse 10, we were staying there for some days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Agabus we know from a prior reference that Luke makes. This was the man that came uh, to Jerusalem and predicted the famine about a decade before. Now he comes down from Jerusalem to Caesarea to speak to Paul. And he does so in the manner uh, in which the Old Testament prophets did, by acting it out. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, tied his feet and his hands with 
with uh, Paul's belt. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? He wasn't sorrowful. Uh, Heart in Greek is the will. It's another part of the man. You're trying to break my will. I am determined, he says, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he wouldn't be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, well, God's will be done. Uh, the Christians and uh, in uh, Tyre and Paul's traveling companions tried for seven days to convince him not to go to Jerusalem. He says that they kept saying over the seven-year period, through the Spirit of God, don't go. And now the Christians in Caesarea warn him that if he goes, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and bound, and he'll be unable to finish his ministry. He had said earlier that he purposed in the Spirit, in his own spirit, to go to, to Rome. That was his intention. And then on to the west, probably to to Spain, as far as we know. And uh, the Lord says to him, don't go to Jerusalem. I believe it was God's will that Paul booked passage on a ship from Caesarea to Rome, and that he go due west to Rome. And as they say, Paul's will was case-hardened. He was bullheaded. He was determined. He was going to go to Jerusalem. His motives were right. And proper, he wanted to take the gift to the poverty-stricken saints there. He wanted to minister to the church in Jerusalem. He wanted to see some of his old friends from Judaism. And he had just written the book of Romans a few months before, in which he, he spells out his great love for the people in Jerusalem, his Jewish kinsmen, whom he said he was willing to give his life for, forfeit his chance in heaven even, if they could be saved. Loved those people. His heart was right. He was earnest. He was zealous for the kingdom of God and its extension. He, he was a righteous man, but he was wrong. He was dead wrong. He confused, I think, the, his own will for God's will. He blundered. And it was a cosmic blunder in some sense. He went up to Jerusalem. He, he thought he was going to have an opportunity to evangelize. He started to riot. They mobbed him. He almost lost his life. All of his Jewish friends turned against him. He tried to speak to them. They shouted him down, said, Away with this fellow. Put him to death. The Roman official uh, interfered, and intervened, took him, took him away. He tried to speak to the uh, Jewish Senate in Jerusalem. Made a fool of himself. Lost his temper. Rebuked the high priest. Had to apologize to the whole council. Disrupted the council so that no judgment was given. And... Uh, They put him in jail in Jerusalem, kept him there for a few weeks, and sent him down to Caesarea. Didn't have any opportunity to speak to the church other than a brief contact with him when he first arrived. Had no opportunity to preach to his Jewish kinsmen. Was down in Caesarea for three years in jail. We don't hear anything of him during that period, except there was some contact with uh, Roman officials. And uh, then he's sent off to Rome, and he spends two more years in, in prison in in Rome. For five years, he was frustrated, inhibited in his desire to go to the, to, to the West. I think he was wrong. I think he blundered. Huge mistake. Contrary to the will of God. I, I don't know any other way to read verse 4. These people said through the Spirit, stop going 
to Jerusalem. But he wouldn't listen. Had his mind made up. The interesting thing is that despite his blunder, God used him. He was not disqualified. He wasn't set aside. If you turn over to uh, chapter 23 of uh, Acts, verse 11, after the uh, riot that he caused in the Sanhedrin, this is on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage. And the implication is that he was not feeling very courageous at this point. He was frightened, discouraged. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And though Paul had blundered, I believe, God at this point undertook to use even that mistake to glorify himself. What God saw was, was Paul's heart and the intent of his heart. He wanted to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. He wanted to open their ears. He wanted to heal those that were wounded by sin. He, he wanted to see God's kingdom uh, extended. He, he wanted to live out the life of God. He wanted to glorify God. He had a great zeal for God and, and his kingdom. God saw all of that. And so he, he used that, that big mistake in Paul's life to glorify himself. When he got to Rome, he was, as you know, under house arrest, and he was chained to a Roman soldier, one of the Praetorian Guard, one of the elite young men in the Roman Empire, in four-hour shifts. And these men were being led to Christ, and they were going back to Caesar's palace, and they were leading their friends to Christ, and the gospel was spreading throughout the Roman Empire from the inside out, from the center of Caesar's house, Nero's house. Or it wouldn't be Nero, it's another emperor at this time, Galba. It was spreading from that point out. And uh, Paul says in Philippians, The things that have happened to me have proceeded under the furtherance of the gospel. Just don't worry about me. God's taken care of me. I haven't been set back. And furthermore, during this time, he wrote the books of Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and, and Philemon. So God was still at work because he saw his heart. It's a, it's a gentle reminder to us that what really matters to God is the attitude of our heart. He's not put off by our sins and mistakes. His grace is greater than our sin. What he sees is the heart. And if the heart is right, he will use even our mistakes to glorify himself. I think you have to distinguish between acts of sin and an attitude of rebellion. There isn't much God can do with an attitude of rebellion. Sins with a high hand. If we say we don't want God's will, we're not pursuing it, we're not interested in, in the extension of God's kingdom, we want our own way, then there isn't much God can do. But, but the sins that we commit that are sins of passion and things that we say and do, you know, we just get off on the wrong foot and we act without thinking, and those, those sins don't, don't disqualify us. They're sins, and I'm not making light of them. And sin always hurts, always hurts us. Uh, certainly it hurt the Apostle Paul. He endured a great deal as a result of his sin. And we shouldn't adopt the attitude that people were in Rome when they were saying God is gracious, so let's just sin so God can be more gracious. Paul says, God forbid that, that we should act that way. We need to take sin seriously. But we should not think that our sins disqualify us if the attitude of our heart is to serve God. But he's merciful. He's gracious. He's forgiving. The best example I can think of, and I use this uh, fellow over and over again with our men on Wednesday morning, is David. 
lusty old guy. He, he seemed to have a hard time getting things right. An adulterer, he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's a very violent man, and yet God says, here's a man after my own heart. And I say, now wait a minute. How can David be a man after God's own heart? Well, you read his Psalms. He says, the zeal for God's house has eaten me up. He made a fool of himself. He was so zealous for God. He turned off his family and his wife and, and any other number of people because he, he hungered for righteousness, though he failed again and again and again. Now, again, I'm not excusing David's sin, and he paid for it. But it didn't ultimately set him back. It didn't disqualify him. Let me illustrate this principle from an Old Testament passage. Would you turn to uh, Numbers, the 15th chapter? <clears throat> uh, so many Christians have entirely the wrong concept of the law. They think of it as hard and unyielding and impossible to attain. And yet you read uh, Psalm 119 in the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. And we think, how could anybody love the law? The only people that love the law today are lawyers. <laughs> how can you love the law? Well, because that psalmist understood the function of the law. As Luther put it, the function of the law is to send us to Christ, who then sends us back to the law. That's a beautiful expression of it, really a very complex theological idea. You read the law and you say, oh, it's unattainable. You read the Sermon on the Mount, you get the same impression. Who can live up to it? Can't. It's impossible. No human being can do it. And so we're driven to Christ and we say, Lord, I cannot do it. And he says, I know you can't, but I can. And then we're sent back to the law to do it. That was the function of the law in the Old Testament. It drives us to God and his resources. And when we understand it that way, then it's attainable. It's not hard. We can love it. And uh, here's an example of of a passage that, uh, when, when rightly understood, I think shows us something of God's grace. The, the first time you read it, you think just the opposite. God is hard, impossible to live with. Now listen to this. Verse 27, Numbers 15, 27. If one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make... Atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. And we say, that's just what I thought about the Old Testament. God in the Old Testament is hard and tough and, and uh, unyielding, impossible to please. If You know, you, you can be forgiven for sins that, uh, of ignorance. If you don't know that the law says something and you disobey the law, then you can be forgiven. But if you know the law... Uh, uh, if you understand the uh, commandment and you violate it, then there's no forgiveness. You're cut off from God's people. That's just what I thought. But that's not at all what this law says. Unfortunately, the word that's translated unintentional doesn't mean unintentional or inadvertent at all. It really is a, it's referring to a deliberate sin. But, but the word means to wander off, to err, to make a mistake. It's the same word that's used in uh, 
Verse 26, the last word in verse 26 in the, in the, in the New American Standard, error. For it happened to all the people through error. Then he goes right on. If one person sins in error, then he shall offer a, a one-year-old female. He's not, he's not talking about making mistakes in that sense, that you, you sin against a law that you're unaware of. He's talking about choices, deliberate choices to sin, and he's contrasting them with uh, what he calls uh, defiance in verse 30. The Hebrew word means sin with a high hand, sin of the sin of treason. Just saying, God, I don't care what your law says. I'm not going to live in, in accordance with it. Now, let me try to explain the difference. Uh, Josh and I, this last summer, took a little short float trip down the Upper Payette. Uh, some of you have seen that little stream that flows from Upper Payette Lake to Lower Payette Lake. It's a beautiful meandering stream through there. And we have a little rubber raft. And we were floating through there, and as we floated over pools, we could see the kokanee running. They were going up river to spawn. Beautiful, big red salmon. And I said to Josh, Josh, let's go back to McCall and get some snag hooks, and we'll come back and catch some kokanee. Now, if I had had some snag hooks with me, we would have... Uh, we would have been snagging fish. But I didn't have any, so we'll go back to McCall. When we got to McCall, we discovered that you can't snag kokanee in that part of the river. That section of the river is protected, or they're protected. So we would have been violating the law. Now, had I done so ignorantly, if I'd had snag hooks with me, I would have been unintentionally sinning. I wouldn't have been uh, excused because ignorance of the law is no excuse. And if it happened to be a fish and game fellow there, I, I would have been ticketed and, and responsible. But uh, I didn't know. See, that's the sin of ignorance. If I'd gone into McCall and discovered that, uh, that uh, it was against the law to snag there and said to Josh in a kind of a fit of passion, we've got to do it anyway, then that would have been the sort of sin that he's describing here, which he calls unintentional. Or if I had made up my mind before I went to McCall that it make, doesn't make any difference what the law says, I'm going to disobey the law, then I would be like the fellow he describes who's, do, who's acting in defiance of the law. You see the different difference? The man who acts in defiance is a man whose heart has never been changed. We would say he's an unbeliever. He's a non-Christian. He's unsaved. He doesn't know God. doesn't care about God. has no interest in God. For that kind of person, there's no forgiveness. doesn't mean that he's... He's excluded eternally. It just means that as long as he maintains that stance toward God, there's no salvation. The, the first person who's described here as sinning unintentionally is the person who blunders along like David and makes deliberate choices to sin. And there's forgiveness. Always forgiveness. When Nathan came to David and told that little story about the sheep that had been stolen, wagged his long bony finger under David's nose and said, You're the man. David said, oh, I know it. I've sinned. He didn't justify himself one moment. It's an indication of his heart. He wanted what God wanted. Through the weakness of his flesh, he had failed, but his heart was right. Now, if he had been able to, to brazenly uh, uh, defy Nathan, it would be an indication that his heart was wrong. There's an interesting illustration of the principle here in, in Numbers 15, verses 32 and following, or simply an illustration of this idea, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody, and then, as you know, they put him to death. They stoned him with stones in verse 36. And we say, that doesn't seem fair. This man wanted some wood for a cooking fire, and he just happened to wander out on the Sabbath day, and they took him out and stoned him. But, but the 
verb that's translated here, he was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day, indicates that this was a habitual practice, and it's a, an intensive stim. The idea is that he did it defiantly. He said, I don't care what the law says. I'm going to go out and gather sticks. And he went out repeatedly on the Sabbath and gathered sticks just to show that he could get away with it. And that's why he was judged and cut off from his people. Now, my question to you and to me is, what is the attitude of our heart? Our sins, our big failures, though they may have been, been big failures, cosmic failures, are not going to disqualify us. Their actions that we've taken in the past, these don't matter. God can overturn them and over, overrule them and even use them to accomplish uh, His purposes in our lives. And my question is, what, what's the attitude of your heart and of mine? Do we really want God's will? Are we submitted to Him? That's what matters. If the heart is right, then God will undertake to make the rest of us right. He will begin to correct our character and, and, and our choices. But the heart has to be right. There's grace that's greater than all our sin, as we say, if we're submitted to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your loving character, for Your understanding heart. As a, as a man, we're told, you were tempted in all points as we are. You understand that those surges of passion and desire that, that sweep through our bodies and those, uh, those times that we re react in anger and say things that we should never say and do things that we should never do. But uh, we're glad that you see our hearts and you know the intent of our of our, of our thoughts and our minds and our intention to be your men and women. Thank you for forgiving us. Make us quick to confess our sin and put it away. Help us to resist the attacks of the evil one when he, he brings to our mind those sins and failures of the past and, and tempts us to disqualify ourselves from usefulness. Help us, Lord, to forgive ourselves as you forgive. Help us to take sin seriously and not to, to overlook the failures in our life, but not to let them weigh upon us to the extent that we're of no use to you. Thank you for your grace that's greater than our sin. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.